Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Slate Money is brought to you by Tax Act. File simple federal and state returns for free by visiting TaxAct.com slash slate. Tax Act will guide you through every step of the process using your computer, tablet, or phone and get you the maximum refund guaranteed. That's taxact.com slash slate. And by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash money. That's texture.com slash money. And by Mile IQ. If you're one of the 60 million Americans who drive for work, then you know that your miles are your dollars. Every mile you don't log is money that you're losing. Mile IQ is the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollars lost. Try Mile IQ for free today by texting Slate Money to 31996. That's Slate Money to 31996. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, people. Happy New Year. It is 2016, and it's going to be an amazing year, isn't it, Kathy? It is. It can only get better. Fantastic. From here on in. We have already been talking about our amazing New Year's resolution edition of Slate Money, which, if all goes according to plan, is going to happen next week. Woo! Woo! But... This is the Hogmanay edition of Slate Money. This is the... I have no idea what that word means. Yeah, they Hogmanay. just made that up. You, neither of you know what Hogmanay is? No. I assume it's, it sounds like some sort of Scottish delicacy. <laughs> <laughs> it's fried. In, in, it's, you're not far off, in a way. Um, Hogmanay is the biggest night of the year in Scotland. Oh, wow. I got close. Um, and it's the time when all Scots go out and drink even more than they normally do. <laughs> you know, and, no true Scots did you guys see sober the, on Hogmanay. Did you guys see the hangover search uh, result, like hangover cure graph for like every day of the year for the Google searches? No, I haven't. It's like an absolute spike on January 1st. Oh, really? I feel That's sorry awesome. for everyone listening the, to this. The, but the interesting thing is that about 90% of those searches come from Scotland. <laughs> Hogmanay is what the Scots call New Year's Eve, and it is, if you've never had 
New Year's Eve. If you've never spent New Year's Eve in Scotland, I can highly recommend it. It is a lot of fun. It gets dark very early. You start drinking even before then, and it's... Did you go to college in Scotland? I did. Ah. I went to Glasgow University. That's right. Um, So this is the Hogmanay edition. We are going to be welcoming in the new year with, without booze. The, our lovely producer, Zach Dynastine, is smiling here because he knows that it's going to be a happy edit for him compared to Ink Uncensored, which was very boozy and which I guest starred <laughs> on this week. I can only imagine. There was a lot of sparkling wine drunk over the course of that. So apologies to anyone who wanted us to get shit-faced on this <laughs> podcast. But yeah, we are going to talk about um, what are we going to talk about this week? Oh, wait, hang on a sec. I should introduce Kathy O'Neill. Oh, hi. Hi, the the blogger at mathbabe.org and general awesome person. I should introduce Jordan Weissman. Hi, Jordan. Hello. Um, the the <laughs> money box columnist who's I don't know what that also good was. at <laughs> funny voices. I'm not sure what that was. Um, <laughs> what was Kathy is going to talk about derivatives trading because, and we're going to make it interesting. Don't go away. Jordan is going to talk about Hogmanay, why not? And I am going to talk about Warren Buffett, because you can never get enough Warren Buffett. Let's start with Eeny, meeny, miny, Jordan. Okay. So uh, the internet was really bored this week, like really deeply, deeply bored. It was a slow news week. It's a week. slow news week. There are like three people in everyone's office. You know what I'm talking about. Um, so when news broke that Olive Garden was charging $400 uh, pop for its New Year's Eve party, everyone kind of went nuts. Just um, yeah, And this this idea of breaking news, it, the Olive Garden, This is there's only one Olive Garden <laughs> on the planet which does this. Yes, it's the, the Olive Times Garden Square, in Times Square, yeah. which is the biggest Olive Garden in the world. And which does this every year. This is not exactly news. Yes, but the New York Post decided to report on it. And well, basically what the New York Post did was it went and just asked all the Times Square restaurants how much they were going to charge for the evening. Um, but Bubba Gump Shrimp was $799. And we're going to come back to Bubba Gump in a second. Bubba um, Gump Shrimp, by the way, is a restaurant which is named after a fictional company in Forrest Gump. Yes. The yes, movie. Yes, yes. Yes. Fried shrimp, scampi shrimp, you know, bl- black Wait, and shrimp. When did Forrest Gump come out? I want to say it was like early 80s. 94. Oh, yeah. early 90s. Yeah. I'm so way off. Yeah. I just feel like it has spawned a restaurant. Is, is, Can we is, stop is talking chain? about that movie? I mean, why? Why? Is, is this a chain? chain or is there only one of no, them? No, there's. it's a chain. It's a chain. Yeah, it's a chain. And I think you have to be. Isn't there some rule that you have to be a chain restaurant if you're in Times Square? I think that, well, I think those are the only ones that are going to be able to do enough business probably to, or be able to even make like the investment up front to do that. Although, you know, that's not tr- totally true because Guy Fieri has a restaurant in Times Square. Had. Ha- had. Has. Had. Had? It's, had. It's, yeah. It's, it closed. It closed? It closed. No, they're offering a New Year's Eve. It was too Eve. good. It closed? They were offering a New Year's <laughs> Eve party last I looked. Welcome to Flavortown, that one? Yeah. I thought that one closed. We'll have, uh, well, we'll have to we'll fact check. check this later. We'll uh, fact, we don't check, so, fact check this so, podcast. I, so also, I think Ruby Tuesdays had a six, a seven, uh, a seventeen hundred dollar dinner for two and a VIP booth. Um, you get the idea. This is what they're charging. And so I, I took a look in particular at Bubba Gump Shrimp's pricing model. And my opinion is actually that they undercharged everyone. But Felix, I want to start with you. I want yes. To, as the resident food snob, are, yes. are and Kathy, you too a little bit, are you appalled by this, or do you see a sense in people paying $400 okay, so, to $1,600 so $1, for this? The first thing I will say is that this is a complete no-brainer. Given the choice between spending New Year's Eve in Times Square with a million other people with nothing to eat, 
nothing to drink, nowhere to sit, nowhere to pee. There are people who literally turn up to Times Square wearing adult diapers yes. because there's nowhere to pee. Given the choice between that, which just seems like the ninth circle of hell, and spending 400 bucks to have a chair and a toilet and an open bar, like... You know, it would take me a fraction of a second to, you know, sign up for Olive Garden or anywhere where there was, you know, somewhere to sit down and, and booze. So it really depends on what your perspective is. From the perspective of someone like me who just can't imagine ever wanting to go to Times Square on New Year's Eve, it makes no sense. Why would you ever want to, you know, spending $1,700 at Bubba Gump Shrimp doesn't make any sense either. But it makes more sense than the million people who are in <laughs> New Year's Eve, I mean, in Times Square. Okay, well, I have a different perspective, but it ends up being pretty close. So the first thing I thought about is like, well, what is this, this apple dropping or whatever, the ball dropping? Is this a, is this a public uh, event? Uh, in which case, like if it was like a firecrackers event, like then it would offend me that only rich people, you know, that you could pay your way into a good, into a good spot, into a sort of a you know elite spot. Because I'm thinking, oh, it's a public; it should be publicly accessible. I looked into the history though a little bit of this event. Okay, and it's never been a public event. Well, it, in it fact, is public Times Square is a public well, space; but anyone can turn up. But I guess let's, what I mean say what I mean to say is it's never been a non-commercial event. It is a commercial event. It start got started by the guy who ran the New York Times back way back when in 1907. And I've taken a quote from the, the webpage of this event that happens every year since 1907, except in 1942 and 1943. On the very first year, waiters in the fabled, quote, lobster palaces, unquote, and other deluxe eateries in hotels surrounding Times Square were supplied with battery-powered top hats emblazoned with the numbers 1908, fashioned on tiny light bulbs. At the stroke of midnight, they all flipped their lids, and the year on their foreheads lit up in conjunction with the numbers 1908 on the parapet of the Times Tower. So not only is this an old tradition, yes. it's been is ta- it's been this tacky it's been for its this, entire exactly. history. It's like it's actually a completely <laughs> consistent uh, arc. That. And so for that reason, I'm just like, yeah, this is about commercialism. This is about selling ridiculous food. Uh, I don't think anyone is paying for the food. No, yeah, no one's paying for the food. We can all agree on that. They're paying for the location. Although some of the, the funny thing is some of the restaurants actually can't really see the ball drop. And those are the ones that are charging less. It's it's interesting to see how like the like they re- there is price sensitivity here. These aren't all just like... It's clear they're not catering just to rich people because there are different levels at mm. which you can pay. Um, you know, everything from like a $200, $300 ticket to the $1,600 table for two. I, I want to make my argument quickly about why Bubba Gump is actually undercharging. Um, I think it's <laughs> very clear that they are leaving money on the table. And it's a, so they're charging about $800 a head. However, if you look, they, they sold out. And I checked with the company and they actually sold out in five days. Five total. days. So. Already, when you see something selling out, that's usually a sign that's underpriced because, you know, too many people, you, there's more can demand. Can you get, like, Bubba Gump reservations on StubHub? Is there a secondary so, market in no, there? So, <laughs> may, I, there might be. I mean, there are tickets, but I, I should have looked at that. But here's the thing. So, I went and checked a little further. It turns out they award their tickets by lottery. You have to sign up months ahead of time, and then they give if you win the lottery, you get your tickets, and then you pay – which the obvious takeaway there is that demand way outstrips the which, which set is supply. Jordan's way of saying that rather than have even a veneer of democracy here, 
this really should just be for rich people. This should be an auction. Yeah, I mean, Bubba Gump really this should, should be. This should just reward the people with the most money to burn. <laughs> I, I, I think that's what Jordan said. Yeah, that is yeah. What, no, direct what quote. I, well, what I, I am saying that they are. <laughs> yeah, I, yes, that is. That's basically. Actually, if I could swap that, I would. <laughs> you know I what? Said. I actually uh, just business idea. I'm going to just carry a porta potty down to Times Square <laughs> and charge like 50 bucks for each person who wants to use oh, it. Oh man, the um there might be there might be some licensing or <laughs> I need to ask because yeah. you guys are the Americans. Yeah. And this is where I get to pull my foreigner card. Yeah. Can someone explain to me like I, I perfectly understand the whole if you're going to Times Square you would like to be able to sit down. Can you explain to me the overwhelming majority, the 99% of people in Times Square who are just standing there freezing and for hours and hours? They couldn't be like there for eight or nine hours. You have to get there super yeah. early. Yeah, you do. Can someone explain this? No. I, not only do you have to get there early, you have to stay inside a pen. They call it them pens. Yeah. And then you have to, I think you have to wear. If chickens were treated like this, that would be considered like inhumane and no one would want to eat them. <laughs> that, that's not true, Felix. Ch- chickens are treated like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've actually I've had the urge to do it. So I've never done it, but I have had the urge to do it. I think I would never do it with kids. I would never do it with elderly people. I would only do it with people who are just like, we're going to see if we can get if we can drink this entire bottle of whiskey. <laughs> Which you're not allowed to bring in. No, but I mean, people sneak it Obviously, in. Obviously, you have to bring whiskey. Yeah, people, <laughs> yeah, people sneak stuff in. People get drunk beforehand. All of that then will wear off after eight hours. Um, I, you know, you know, there's something to be said for just being there, I think. Some people just really like to be at the center of things and they think of Times Square as like the center of New Year's celebration. And I also want to add that like it has nothing to do with actually watching the ball drop. I mean, it can't. Like, these restaurants aren't giving them good views. It's about so, being well, in Well, Bubba Gump Shrimp is. Bubba Gump Shrimp has, like, a direct view. That's why it can charge so much. <laughs> okay, whatever. Yeah, that's, again, this is why I think they should be auctioning. It's about being there. It's bidder. about being part of the, it's literally a million people. Yeah. A million well, people I, I, I can tell you as someone, I worked at Reuters for five years, and Reuters is right next to the ball. Like, yeah. You, got, you do right. not get a better view of the ball. I have ball a friend who stayed the there for New Year's one year just Reuters. to watch it. And, and they and there was this annual email which would go out saying, well, if you want to come in and like work that night, you know, you have to be in by this time and you can't leave until that time. And all of us would look at each other and go, why on earth would we want to do that? But apparently people pay a fortune for being able to do that. Oh, no, if Reuters... We, Reuters was leaving money on the table as well. Actually, <laughs> uh, to be entirely honest, if Reuters is having any financial troubles these days, I haven't checked in a while, this might be a revenue stream. <laughs> uh, like, they might really want to check into it. They... Make, you know, at least a hundred bucks a ticket just for the, anyway. Okay, so, um, Kathy. Yes. In a second. Yeah. You are going to talk to us about derivatives. I will. But I'm going to make it sexy too. you talk to us about derivatives, <laughs> I'm going to tell you about our sponsor, which is Tax Act. You've made all of the money. I hate to break this to you, but all of the money that you are going to make in 2015 has now been made. It is done. Your job now is to tell the government how much you made in 2015 and with taxact.com that's how you do it you get easy fast affordable tax filing at your fingertips you get everything you need to file your taxes if your deal is getting the best deal go to taxact.com slate and get your simple federal and state returns for free taxact.com slate so um you used to work at a hedge fund. I did. And 
the hedge fund traded derivatives and presumably made money doing that. Yeah, I guess so. so. But it's also possible, it turns out, to lose a lot of money trading derivatives. Yes, it does. It is. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little wonky here, but it's gonna be. We fun. like that. Okay. So you're allowed to. That's why we have you on. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought it was for my body. <laughs> that that's next week. That's that's the second. That's next reason. week. Okay. That's next week. Um. So yeah. So look. I was in the futures uh, futures trading group, but um, what I'm interested in talking about today is options because there was a really interesting article written by. Do, do our l- listeners need to understand the difference? Is it important? It's important because there's a really interesting story called uh, around the Black Scholes formula that I want to tell. Okay. Well, I find it interesting. We'll we'll see what the I'm excited think. for it. So Black Scholes, there's actually two people. There's Fisher Black. And Merton Scholes? Myron Scholes. Myron Scholes. Um, and Bob the, Merton, but he's like the third one. Yeah, let's just ignore that guy. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to ignore the first two guys from now on because I'm going to say the one thing they did, and this is a while ago, I want to say late 70s or early 80s, is they they figured out how to price an option. And the way they did it was they created a synthetic portfolio of a bond and some stock. And I'll, let me just explain that. First of all, let's talk about what an option is. I I think for the sake of this discussion, an option is just sort of like a seller of last resort. Like if you own a bunch of things and you you want to be able to sell them, say it's like crude oil or corn, and you want to make sure that you can sell it at some price that's not too, too low, then you buy an option that gives you the right to sell it at the sort of lowest, a low price. So it's not going to go below that price. Well, options existed for a long, long time, but people didn't know exactly how much to charge for them or how much to pay for them. And these guys came along and said, you know what, we can create a synthetic version of this, which is to say something that pays off the same amount of money in the same situations. So it's almost exactly like the same thing, except it's not quite the same thing because it's made up of bonds and stocks instead. Interesting. So what's good about that, it doesn't sound like they've done much, right? Because they've just replicated the same kind of contract with using two different things instead of one thing. The great news was that they knew how much those two things, those two components, cost. And so they could therefore back out how much the original thing should cost. Now, I just want to jump in here and say that Nassim Taleb has done a bunch of work at looking at how much options cost before Black Shoals came along. And what you said is that no one knew how much to charge for them. It turns out that if you look at how much options cost after Black Shoals, they cost generally a little bit more than the Black Shoals formula would suggest on average. And if you look at uh, how much they cost before Black Shoals came out, they cost generally a little bit more than the Black Shoals formula would suggest on average. Basically, the Black Shoals formula gave people a scientific benchmark they could compute things off of, but it didn't actually change the pricing at all. Well, here's what's interesting, um, Felix, and thanks for bringing that up. Like, People believed in the Black-Scholes formula like it was a dictum from a god, and it, it, which is a bad thing. It, it, because one of the reasons is it was wrong. It assumed something which, which would turn out to be completely wrong, namely that the volatility of the market is going to stay fixed at a certain thing, at a certain volatility. And it also assumed continuous markets and yes. a whole bunch of stuff. And it, it, it assumed all sorts of things. Once you had this form- In other words, what happened was once traders had this formula in their pocket, they were just like, I know what I'm doing. And they, it created this false sense of security, an illusion of control, if you will. And so that brings us back to the 
article that you yeah. wanted to talk about, which was very cool. But do you, I, I, I feel like you're, you should intro it because this is such your wheelhouse. Well, I'm going to butcher it if I try to. So. Okay. Well, I'll, it really was an article written by this guy named Bob Henderson who made a huge amount of money by selling an option to Mexico to basically assure the uh, lower bound of price for something called Maya crude. It's a kind of oil, but it's not the standard type of oil. Yeah. So basically, well, I, I do know enough about the oil market to talk about this, but yeah. so Mexico pumps a lot of really dirty, heavy crude oil out of its waters, and it takes a lot of processing. And so it's not quite the same thing as the crude that we pump up in the United States. And for, you know, if Mexico wanted in the past to basically ensure the price it would get on its oil. Um, it used to have to use derivatives based on U.S. oil, American oil. And frankly, oftentimes they kind of tracked each other, but the markets weren't quite the same. And so it was interesting from an oil markets perspective, what Scott Bob Henderson did was he said, you, Mexico, I'm going to create essentially an assur insurance policy, an option that guarantees you the ability to sell your Maya crude at a certain price. And it's going to be based on Maya crude. It's not going to be based on U.S. oil. Right. And so what Bob Henderson did was he said, I'm going to build you the option you want for a certain price. And I will take on the risk of creating the synthetic portfolio on, on my behalf, on my side. Um, and that's a lot of risk he took on. And one thing that happened was, you know, we talked about it as a bond and some kind of underlying stock. Well, in this case, the underlying was a different kind of oil, which was called fuel oil. And the problem was that the option he sold to Mexico was so huge and he had to buy so much fuel oil. And by the way, I should have mentioned that when you do this synthetic portfolio, you have to act on it every day. You have to sort of re-up the portfolio to make sure it's following the option. And he ended up having to sell and sell and sell and sell fuel oil at a huge loss. Because because he'd written this option, he needed to do this thing called delta hedging, which we're not going to be that wonky. No, but we're not. The effect is that every day, according to what happens in the market, you have to either buy or sell. And if the market's going down, every day you need to sell a bit more. And the problem was that the amount, the size of the option that he'd written was so huge, that the amount of fuel oil he had to sell every day was so huge, that he was the one huge seller in the market. Right. And he was driving the price down just by dint of selling all of this fuel oil. And it became this vicious cycle. Yes. He we was should... moving the market in fuel oil, which actually lowered the price more. And then he had to sell more. So this is a great, going back to the Black-Scholes formula, this is a great example. Black-Scholes did not assume that your actions would change the market price. It assumed that you were acting in small enough ways so that nothing like that happened. And so yet another mistake with Black-Scholes. The funny thing about the story, of course, is that he renegotiated. He knew what was happening. He renegotiated with Mexico and he ended up making a shit ton of money. And Mexico ended up happy as well. And it, the, ultimately, it was kind of a huge humble brag the whole article, but it was also interesting looking into the uh, Black Scholes. So formulas. this is, but this is one of the genius things about derivatives traders: is people think that you sell an option and then you either make money on selling that option or lose money on selling that option. But in fact, what these people are is salespeople. He sold this massive deal to Mexico, and as his boss told him, you know, when he got his massive bonus at the end of the year, I'm giving you this massive bonus because you sold this massive deal to Mexico. And all of the work you wound up doing and all of the money you lost and then made back is really neither here nor there. I'm giving you this bonus for selling the deal to Mexico. And in fact, what he did was he sold two deals to Mexico. He sold a big deal to Mexico. And then what happened is that the price of Maya crude went down a lot. Mexico had a huge mark-to-market gain on the option that it, it had bought. So... 
what he did is he went back to Mexico and said, I'm going to allow you to re-up this deal and lock in a lot of that gain. And Mexico said, that sounds good. We just make $3 billion. And Bob Henderson said, that sounds good to me, because if you didn't do that, I would lose $200 million a month for the foreseeable future, and I would lose my job. And he also then, this is the crazy bit, took this massive prop bet on fuel oil, basically. He bet that it was going to continue to fall, which it did. And then he covered that bet, more or less timed the market perfectly, covered it when it was at the bottom, started buying a bunch of fuel oil, then it went up and he made a fortune on fuel oil. And so never mind the whole sort of Black Shoals synthetic, like trying to delta hedge and all of that kind of stuff. He, he more or less gave up on that and just prop bet the whole oil market and made a fortune. So that, that that's the thing. So we should one thing we left out at the beginning of this, it's sort of important, is he sold this option to Mexico right before the financial crisis. He basically insured two-thirds of Mexico's entire 2009 oil production, which is just insane. You insured two-thirds of one of the world's largest oil producers. And in general, just to be clear about this, you want to be a buyer of options when volatility is low and a seller of options when volatility is high. That's basically how you make money in options. What he did is he sold the option to Mexico when volatility was low and that's exactly the position you don't want it's, to be in. By the way, it was enough to fill more than 100 super tankers with oil. Yeah. That's how much oil we're talking about. I mean, about. There, was, there was nothing he could... I mean, he, he was up Shit's Creek without a paddle. But what? But he the, found a paddle. That well, he found one. Thing. But so this is the point <laughs> he, he kind of... a couple of This is the point he kind of makes in article, is that all of his mathematical models basically failed him. And because he had done all this stress testing, he had done all these tests to see what the worst case scenario was because he didn't see the Great Recession coming and he didn't see the actual worst case scenario for the oil market. So the models were useless because the assumptions were bad. And that's where he comes back to this idea of the illusion of control is that people tend to think they have more ability to influence what are actually random events than they really do. Well, not even influence, but they rarely imagine that things are going to get worse than they have been in the past. Especially if they have mathematical models. Which are based on the past. So, you know, one of my pet animals, you know, in in my menagerie of financial instruments is this thing called the Gaussian copula function, which was more or less the single most destructive piece of mathematics ever invented. And this was basically something which looked at credit derivative prices on mortgage-backed securities over the period of about two or three years that these things existed. And based on the volatility of this incredibly benign period that they were trading, said, well, they can never go too bad. And then people started writing all of these crazy instruments based on the idea that they never really moved very much. But of course, they only never really moved very much over two years between 2004 and 2006. It's, yeah. It's the, the fighting the last war thing, was, it was interesting to me because a lot of what he was saying in this article actually reminded me of our conversation with Greg Ip. This, this article in Nautilus talks about the Fed stress tests now. Every year, the Federal Reserve requires banks to undergo a stress test, which sees will they essentially survive if the worst happens. But their idea of the worst is essentially a replication of the Great Recession. That's there. They look at unemployment spikes and GDP goes down by X amount. What they don't look up 
and this is a point in the article, is say the euro cracks up. Something truly disastrous and unforeseen takes place. Um, Hyperinflation, something along those lines. And so, again, like, you know, Greg told us before, there's a degree to which when regulators try to fix things and make them safer, they're fighting the last war. It seems like there's a little bit of that going on with the Fed and their ability, their attempts to control and prevent another disaster or suffer from some of the same flaws. I thought that was notable. Yeah. And you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a purely mathematical process uh, to fool us. Um, There was an incredible Atlantic article um, on the VW scandal written by Jerry Usim. Um, and he talked about like the normali- normalization of deviance, where he, you, you have these scripts that you go by, especially if you're the CEO of a large company or uh, up up there. And, you know, things get more and more out of whack, but you're just following your scripts. It's just uh, it's similar to be like following the formula. Normalization just believe of in it. deviance is something you see all over the place. One of my, I literally see it every day. I ride my city bike around New York City every day. And I ride, bicycles in other cities around the world as well. If you ride a bike around London or around Copenhagen or around New York, you see massive differences in basically how law-abiding cyclists are. And in New York, cyclists are happy to do this horrible thing called salmoning where you run the wrong way down the street or um, they run through red lights or they ride on sidewalks and they do all of these things they're not allowed to do, mainly because everyone else seems to be doing it and it seems normal. And all of these are behaviors which you would never see in, say, Cambridge, you know. And so it's localized often within certain communities. Yeah. But once a bunch of people start doing things, it, like you get much, much more deviant behavior and it becomes normalized. The last thing I'll say is that both these articles talk about the role of stress inside that norm- that localized culture and how every human being always thinks the future is going to be good. But stressed out human beings who are under pressure from their bosses are even particularly bad about this. They will do anything in the current uh, currently to avoid future problems. They just don't believe future problems will happen. And so you see, you see that with the VW thing. You see that with this kind of derivatives trading. It's all over the place. Okay. So if you want to learn more about the Gaussian copular function, read my article in Wired magazine. This is where I segue seamlessly into the ad for Texture, who is a <laughs> who is a sponsor of, of Slate Money this year, or this week at least. Um, we hope all year, because we love Texture, because they're a great company, and they're basically Spotify for magazines, and you can read Wired, you can read The New Yorker, you can read, you know, basically any magazine you want. It starts with ad week and all recipes and allure, and it goes all the way through to... Women's Health, Wood Magazine, Working Mother, and Yoga Journal. And there are over 100 different magazines, including all of your favorite magazines. Literally, you you want to look at this list because it has all of them. It's one subscription, and you just pay that one subscription, and it's all available on your tablet. It's kind of awesome on your phone. You can read any magazine you want, any article from any magazine, going back years, and... Yeah, I I can recommend it, and you can save it for offline reading if you're on a plane or the subway or whatever. Anything you want to do, you can do. So it's called Texture. If you have ever found yourself at, say, an airport newsstand, you think, I should stock up on magazines, a month's subscription to Texture costs less than, like, just buying free magazines at the airport newsstand, but you get hundreds of them, and they're always available to you. They have a curated collections list. It's easy to use. And guess what? 
but there's a free trial. Let's do it. Let's do it. So you go to texture.com slash slate money. So you get it for free right now by going to texture.com slash slate money and try it out. And if you don't like it, you don't pay anything. It's awesome. Great. Next up is Warren Buffett. Now, we've talked about the skeevy side of Warren Buffett's empire before. Okay, so back in 2015, this pair of reporters, Mike Baker and Daniel Wagner, who were at the Seattle Times and the Center for Public Integrity, wrote a story about how Clayton Homes, which is a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, was a predatory lender. This is um, Warren Buffett's mobile home subsidiary, basically. Now... Mike Baker and Daniel Wagner have come back with another article, but now it's Seattle Times and BuzzFeed, because obviously BuzzFeed is better at these things than the Center for Public Integrity. They're not bad at it. They're, they're very good. I was so in love with this article. And what it does is it it's the same story about predatory lending by Clayton Holmes and, its, and, the, and the mortgage lenders that Berkshire Hathaway owns, but they've added this just particularly evil racial overlay to the whole thing. And what they're showing is that a lot of the victims are Native Americans or African Americans. And these people, or, you know, these are people, sometimes Hispanic Americans who don't speak English and who have very friendly Spanish-speaking salespeople, but then get presented with a whole bunch of English language jargon documents, which they can't read and don't understand. They're just told to sign on the dotted line. So, um, so Kathy, you yeah. loved this article. Uh, it was just so good. And, you know, one of the things uh, I loved about it is they had this, I don't know if you noticed, a link to their methodology. Just it, it warms the cockles of my heart. BuzzFeed is very good in its investigations, like the um, H2 visa investigation especially, of having a lot of primary documents there so you can really see exactly what they're talking about. So, uh, and I also just want to make a plug <laughs> for a certain uh, civil rights regulation law that they're using here. This sounds, I know how sexy this is, um, but it really is. It's amazing. It's called the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. And what it does, because these are uh, prefabricated homes, whenever you take a loan out to buy one, it's considered a mortgage loan. And so it falls under this this act, which basically means you have to collect race information about the borrower. The reason is because historically, um, lenders would would practice redlining, which would mean they would avoid giving certain people loans. So th- this act was just to be able to keep track of whether this was this redlining was happening. Now, what these guys did in this article was they they tracked not redlining, but what they called reverse redlining, and that is that you charge minorities more money. Uh, than you would charge well, well, it, white well, person. Redlining is where you refuse to lend to yes. minorities. Reverse redlining is where you target minorities yeah. because they're the most profitable segment. Um, so they had this. They had this one line that said Vanderbilt typically Vanderbilt's the lender uh, for that works for. Um, What's it called? I'm sorry. Clayton, Clayton Home. Or Berkshire well, Hathaway. Warren yeah. Buffett. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. part of this galaxy Van, of companies. Yeah. So Vanderbilt typically charged black people who made over $75,000 a year slightly more than white people who make only thirty. dollars Okay. Now, this is year. where I'm going to come in and do a tiny bit of in defense of Warren Buffett. Okay. Please. Because income is not really much of a factor in the way that these loans are underwritten. And if you look at things which are factors like credit scores, I think what happens is that these differences basically go away. It is well known that black people earning $75,000 a year have roughly the same credit as 
white people earning, you know, thirty five thousand dollars a year, or you know, they have worse credit, they have less wealth. All of these things are racist. You know, I mean, it's bad that it, because of the structural racism in the United States, that for any given income group. Certain minorities and African Americans, in particular, are much, much worse off financially. But given that, it does kind of stand to reason that they are going to wind up paying more for their mortgage. I, I actually totally. My point was, I was trying to make was that I'm so glad that they explain the methodology. I could go do this data analysis. Is my yeah. point right? And you might be right, Felix. I, I expect you are right because you, you're right that people that blacks with higher incomes still have worse credit scores, and the, ultimately the. Um, APR, the interest rate that they charge, probably has more to do with the credit score than their income, although it probably has to do with both of them. But the point is that I can go do this analysis, too. And I think that's pretty cool that they've set it up so that we, I can go do it. So now that we've defended Warren Buffett a little bit, I want to <laughs> go back to criticizing him, which is, you know, it's not just the differential in uh, rates that was a problem. There's right. all, I mean, there, there's all sort of rot, all sorts of rot that they, they were uncovering. Um, one of the big problems was that there's this in-house lender called Vanderbilt. And one of the rules for, for when you're selling a home is you are not supposed to push a specific lender. You're not allowed to say, oh, come to our in-house lender. But Unless you are li specifically licensed to do so, which most of these mobile home salespeople are not. Yeah, exactly. And so BuzzFeed and Seattle Times talked to, I think, like 280 buyers, people who had purchased homes through this company. And they found that sometimes they were told there were no other lenders um, making loans. They even loans. got someone to record the, yeah, their, their conversation. conversation. Yeah. Exactly. They were, they were told that there were no other lenders in their era, even though that wasn't true. They would do things like they would have a basically a billboard in the office. And even though the home salesman could not push Vanderbilt, there'd be a big red button on the billboard. And if you pressed the big red button, there is a recorded pitch for Vanderbilt. And the thing about Vanderbilt was that it gave worse terms. It, or according to their research, it consistently overcharged um, both poor people and minorities, but they were specifically targeting non-English speakers. And they were doing it through their advertising, through fairly sophisticated geographic analysis to find immigrant communities. Um, and then handing them, like you said, Felix, these stacks of papers that were written in dense uh, English legalese with nobody to translate for them, and thereby giving them these homes that they had basically no chance of being able to pay off. There are all sorts of, I think, interesting issues here also. With, I think that the, the one which I would really like to pick up on is a very simple test, which no responsible lender should ever fail, which is... Do you make money on this loan even when it defaults? And if the answer is, yeah, we always make money even when they default, that's a very likely to be a predatory loan. Well, listen, I mean, nobody makes money if, if the default is immediate. That's but, not true. No, in this case, In it this is case, they do. What? Yeah. Yes. This is why it's, I miss that. Tell me is, how that's because possible. Because this is how it happens. Because they get these... They, they charge a whole bunch of fees and down payments and stuff up front. Uh-huh. Okay. And then... You know what the thing is about mobile homes? Tell me the thing. You, they're mobile. Oh. You can take them back. So you give the person the mobile home. They live in it for you know a month or two. They default. They don't make any payments. And you just tow it away, and then you sell it to someone else. And you get the. And then you do the same thing. You get all of the fees up front. Give it to someone. I tow see. it away. It's take the it back. Upfront plus the yeah. the repo. It's the. It's more similar to predatory car lending in that sense than it is to predatory home lending in that you can just take back a car and sell it as a used car and still make a pretty good profit in the end. And so 
they don't really worry much if less than a year later they're going to have to be repossessing it. And by the way, I want to throw in that they also looked into the internal corporate culture at Vanderbilt and they found some really nasty practices, especially for debt collectors who are just super demeaning. They recorded someone on the phone saying, well, you could try selling some plasma. Uh, So I, I have a question, though. One of the big problems with the lead up with the housing bubble and the lead up to the financial crisis was there wasn't really anyone regulating mortgages. You know, we're supposed to have the CFPB now kind of looking at predatory lending and trying to do something about it. But if all this was going on and it was available in the data and it no one was doing anything about it until BuzzFeed and uh, the Seattle Times dug into the numbers, which were presumably available to government regulators as well. What does that say about our current state of regulation? I'm, I, I There's a of, lot of bad lenders out there. But yeah. I mean, I do think that they... But this is a huge one. I mean, but, but Clayton, is, Clayton is... Uh, they, they argue that is the nation's largest home builder. Okay, because... so um, Clayton refused to cooperate with the reporters doing this story and then put out a detailed response after the story came out. And I hate it when companies behave that way. And it's just always a red flag. In this detailed response, they were basically making this case that they are the only people who are providing this incredibly important service to an underserved community. The underserved communities being the you know the poor people and the minorities who are the victims of the predatory lending and the incredibly important service being we will give you a mortgage, basically. And as we have covered on this podcast many times in the past, my general feeling about this is, and we had... Um, we had Howell Pollock on last week saying, only buy a house if you can afford it. This is a prime example of this is a service which no one really should get. Because if you can't afford a house, you shouldn't be getting a house. And saying, I've created a way of lending you money so that you can get a house, you're not helping things. Beyond that, so what is the argument for encouraging mobile home ownership? I mean, it's a depreciating asset. It's not like a mobile home gains value. Maybe the land it's on gains value over time. No, but, it doesn't. It's, uh, you're absolutely yeah. right that you, you don't even get the capital appreciation. The only real argument for buying a house that has ever really swayed me on an economic level is that it is a commitment device which forces you to pay a certain amount of money every month. And at the end of it, you own a valuable asset. Yeah. This argument does not apply to mobile homes because at the end of it, you own a piece of junk which no one wants to buy. Exactly. Uh, well, so- you have to compare it to what the other options these people have, and that's renting. And if they also have you know, terrible renting costs, then... Look, I'm not I'm not defending this industry whatsoever. It's no, awful. and and this is but this is the whole point is that no one is saying even Clayton Holmes is not saying that the cost of owning one of these homes is lower than the cost of renting one. Yeah, and the, and if you rent them, you have much more flexibility. You can move if you run into money troubles. It's, it's, it reminds me so much of the for-profit college industry, especially for the marketing, but also for this thing. This is like an American dream thing. You know, you, you're supposed to go to college. It, you know, this is American dream. You're supposed to buy a house. And I think that's what the, one of the, the selling points of it. So they're selling like an ersatz house that doesn't actually have all the same economic benefits. Right. But they're they, acting they make, like it is. I, I can imagine maybe some people would justify it to themselves saying, I don't, I live in a poor rural part of Mississippi or Alabama full of uh, unscrupulous landlords, and this is my way of getting away from landlords. Like, this is, even if I have to pay a little more, at least I have some independence. But even that, you're then in debt and, to a predatory and lender. And land so. is cheap. You know, one of the ways that the economics works is that Clayton loves to talk about how its down payments are high. It has 20% down payments from lots of people. This is only true because it 
doesn't consider down payments to be cash. It considers down payments to be land. So if you own a plot of land and say, I want to put a mobile home on this plot of land, they will basically take title to that land and consider that to be a down payment, which is just horrible. They're but, taking collateral, essentially, but it calling is, it a down payment. Yeah. It, it is a very um, common way of structuring these deals. And you can see how attractive it is because if you own a small plot of land, you can buy a mobile home for seventy, eighty thousand dollars You can get a $80,000 mobile home which is like 1,400 square feet and big enough for a family. If you wanted to build a 1,400-square-foot home, it would cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's a lot cheaper. So when does all this start to look bad for Warren Buffett is my question. Is there? Do you think he's untouchable? You think he's just like he has such folksy charm that it's just never going to start to erode his reputation? He's Teflon. Well, I'm looking for the attorney general uh, offices of the, the relevant states to t- take a look at this. I mean, don't you think that, that BuzzFeed and... Seattle Times has set it up for them pretty well. It's happening in states, especially where the attorneys general tend not to be as um, quite as aggressive. Especially, uh, and, and especially it's happening in states where there's a lot of predatory lenders who yeah. get away with it. Lending is considered to be, you know, a bit like gun ownership. It's a sort of carpe diem thing. Well, I guess I, th- I think that this article is going to at least embarrass the attorney general office. I mean, even the, if it doesn't embarrass Warren Buffett. The racial element... Kathy, the, you poor, I will naive, say, deluded soul. The racial <laughs> element makes it more likely, I think, because yeah, we, we are... bad shit. We are in this country where we crack down much harder on people who screw minorities than people who just score, screw poor people, um, which I... Or, or we're supposed to. That's how laws are sort of built. So, maybe. We'll maybe. see. We'll see. Okay, next up... The numbers round. But first, uh, another sponsor, which is Mile IQ, which is this little app you download for your phone and it automatically works out where you're driving. And because it can tell when you're in a car and you're driving and then you get a list of all the car trips that you've taken and then you can sort of swipe, swipe left and swipe right and you can register which of those car trips are work-related, a business-related in which you're allowed to get money back. And most people don't bother with this because it's a pain in the ass listing trips. But with the app, MileIQ, you can make $500 a month just by sort of pressing a button and registering your trips and getting the money that you're owed. So if you drive a car for work, MileIQ is a bit of a no-brainer. So what you do is you text Slate Money to 31996 and you get a 40-drive free trial. 40-day? 40-drive. So if you if it takes you three months to make 40 drives, then it will be a oh, free trial lasting for 40 Sorry to drives. And no, no, feel free. Jump right in. And what's more, you get not only to try this out for 40 drives and see how easy it is, you also get 20% off the annual plan, which you're sure to sign up for because the average male IQ user logs $547 a month hmm. in drives. That's over $6,000 a year in miles that you could be claiming. So go for it. 31996. Text Slate Money to 31996. Before we move on to the numbers round, we're going to move on to the um, corrections and clarifications <laughs> round, which, which Zach Dynastein has been doing some real-time correcting and clarifying Thank in, God his, for in his little glass box. Zach, what are you going to tell us about Flavortown? Thank you, Felix. Uh, so Guy Fieri's American Kitchen is holding a New Year's Eve party, and it has a five-hour open bar 
five hour. That's and how much does that cost? It costs one hundred and twenty dollars for general admission and couple VIP package is seven hundred dollars. Still cheaper than Bubba Gump. One hundred and twenty dollars. I could eat five, drink one hundred and twenty dollars. Five hour open bar. I can. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's easy. Be, Although if I remember the Pete it's Wells like two review, drinks, the drinks in New York. Supposed to be terrible. That's but but wait, <laughs> is let's correct and clarify your correct your correction and your clarification here. <laughs> is Guy Fieri's American Kitchen? Yeah, that the is the same restaurant. It is and the same name as the one that. Yes, that is. That's the Pete, Pete Wells, Wells review. Yes, it is. I'm telling you right now. I I I I, I love that review. It's a great <laughs> review, but I didn't. I didn't think it was called American Kitchen. Yeah, he can't actually call it Flavor Town. I think there's like a sign that probably says "Welcome to Flavor Town." But so now that I've completely lost my appetite, Kathy, what's your number? My number is 511, which is uh, the number between 253 and 770. I I found this incredible uh, statistic about. Um, additional rapes that happen on football weekends. Oh, boy. Um, Jordan looks skeptical. Wait, no, what's, no, no, a, wait, what, no, wait, no, what's a football weekend? College so, football weekend. There's, uh, there's 100, out of a, the 128 schools that participate in Division One a football, um, they think that overall, per year, you have about 511 ex- additional rapes because the rape the rate of rapes goes up on weekends that are football games. If we needed another games. reason to ban college football, this I'm, is a good one. I am really anti-football at this point. I used to be a football fan, and I've just like... You still listen to a lot of sports radio. I listen to sports radio, but I, I boycott, I've boycotted football this season because I've just done with it. It's like, there's just, it's too bad. And of so course, I, I, I just want to say, to be fair... This is this is about parties. This is not really about the football game. This is about the parties associated with football games. But still, like if you get rid of the football game, you get thousands of women around the country who will not be raped as a result. That's right. Well, okay, hundreds of, assuming the amount of drinking goes down. I, the, the look I gave you wasn't skepticism. It was just I, I remember looking at this article when it came out on National Bureau of Economic Research and going, oh, God, this is depressing. It is. Uh, it's really but, sad. But yeah, there are all sorts of issues with college partying and, and sexual assault. And this just sort of highlights them. I think this effect is probably the same for basketball games at places that have major teams there, too. It just this happened to look at football. I'm guessing that's my assumption. Uh, any major big-time college sport is probably going to produce where people are drinking. It's going to produce this problem. Um, my I just, number... Oh, I use my litmus test of, like, wh- whether I'd want my kids to do it, and the answer is... Rape? Well, <laughs> no, come well, I think on, football Felix. is where... Football, playing football or going to those kinds of parties? I would say no. Okay. Um, so my number is actually, I, I, as Felix said to me earlier, I'm making it up, but it's a prediction. Uh, I thought about writing an article about this, but it's easier to say it on the air. I just want to go on the record and say I don't think the Federal Reserve is going to raise short-term interest rates above 1%. I want to put that as a benchmark. Basically, the Fed is going to fail in its ambitions this year. Because, and partly in 2016. In 2016. Um, and my feeling about that is partly because, A, none of the major problems, with the exception of maybe the Greek crisis, have really been solved from the past year in the world economy. Beyond that, oil has continued to slide. And that's going to have a hangover effect for the next year that's probably going to keep us close to deflation uh, or could potentially keep us close to deflation, especially if the price of the dollar rises, which for a lot of reasons, I think. It so your, your, your prediction is that interest rates at this time next year will are be, going to be no higher than 1%. Yes, there will be no there will be short term interest rates. The Fed target rate will be no more than 1%. I'm actually going to say 0.75. You, you think yeah. it's going to be one? So basically, you're saying. Of course, if you're Nariana Coach Lakota, you think it's going to be negative. So. Well, he, he, in his heart of hearts, he wants it to be negative. But yeah, so that's, that's I just want to go on the record yeah, saying I'm that. Yeah, I'm going to agree. You're, you're actually going one lower. Than I'm me. going lower. Okay. Okay. Cool. My number is. I'm, I'm doing some mental arithmetic here. My number is <laughs> 207.5 
billion dollars. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's actually a sum. That's that's the sum of one hundred and four billion dollars, which Apple has spent on buybacks over the past three years, plus one hundred and forty-three point five billion dollars that Apple has spent on dividends over the past three years. So you add those two together, and what you get is two hundred and seven point five billion dollars, which is the amount of money. Sorry, two hundred and forty-seven point five billion dollars, which Apple has returned to shareholders just in the past three years alone. And you know what's amazing? Is that over the course of those three years, the amount of cash on Apple's balance sheet has gone up. Mm. So here's the people bemoan they stock They can't buy- give away their money fast yeah. enough. So, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, people bemoan stock buybacks for all sorts of reasons. There, there's a part of the kind of left that, that is convinced that they're actually hurting growth by making companies not invest more. But I think Apple is, if anything, a good example of how that's not necessarily always the case because they are trying to come up with things to spend it on. They invented a watch, for instance, that doesn't seem to be doing too well. They're considering maybe getting into cars. They really don't seem to know what to do with their money. And so I don't know that giving it back to shareholders is necessarily the wrong thing in this case. I mean, like, I have an Android phone, right? Yeah. I didn't get an iPhone. But what is the Android equivalent for a laptop? Like, you know, I don't, there isn't anything. Like, what what do I buy? Yeah, Chromebooks. Okay. Maybe I'll buy a Chromebook instead of a MacBook next time. There you go. But so, because I'm you, just saying, there's the, the competition for laptops is pretty weak. Yeah, competition. But I mean, in the end, they just have the, the iPhone. Just is basically a license to print money for them, and they don't know how to reinvest that money. And, and in for the record, new. you know, even though if you walk into a coffee shop in Manhattan, all you see is MacBooks, laptops are still overwhelmingly Windows or Chrome OS. Yeah, they're not. You know, Mac OS is is. Um, is still a very small minority of computers. So really? It's a coastal elite thing, yeah. It's a coastal snob thing. No, um, but, I guess I am a snob. But yeah, so I don't really, I don't really worry about the buybacks with Apple, because I, I, I don't know what the, what the hell else they would do with it, except for literally just leave it sitting in overseas accounts. Yeah, which yeah. they do too. Yeah, which, which, they, do, I mean, which they are still doing, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, that is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Many thanks to Kathy O'Neill, to Jordan Weissman, to Zach Dynastein, to Andy Bowers, who executive produces this entire Panoply network, which is all to be found at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Happy New Year to all of you. Happy New Year. We're thinking of New Year's resolution yes. sort of fitness episode next week. If you have any questions, it's all a scam, people. In those, um, <laughs> along but those I, lines, I buy, I buy that scam so hard. I, I buy it we love that scam. The, um, the email address, if you want to give Jordan some unsolicited advice on weight training, is <laughs> slatemoney at slate dot com. Yeah, next week we're going to talk about Jordan's attempts to get swole. It's going to be great. <laughs> Jordan, Jordan is going to be. Beefed up. So, Jordan, <laughs> what what what's going to happen to your um? You know, if we're making numerical predictions here, what's going to happen to your like muscle mass over 2016? Okay, I'm going to go with a realistic prediction, which is absolutely jack. <laughs> but I'm going to try to make. I'm going to try to uh, turn that. Uh, I'm going to try to prove myself wrong. So, all, all right. right. Do you have any uh, New Year's resolutions you want to discuss? Felix? So my New Year's resolution is I'm going to, is a really boring one, but I'm going to write about um, changing the world and philanthropy and things like that more in 2016. Okay. That's what, that wasn't the one I was hoping for. So, what was the one you so were hoping I'm going to get swole. You're going to write about changing the world and what are you going to... Well, no, I want to, I, I don't actually want to know what Kathy's New Year's, New Year's resolution is. I want to know 
What <laughs> is the New Year's resolution that Kathy was hoping for? Um, about interrupting Jordan. <laughs> oh. Yeah, let's yes, discuss this. So, that one. So there is this other thing that there's this constant back channel of emails to slate money at slate.com. We love you. Saying, we love you, Felix, but will you stop interrupting Jordan and or Kathy? Um, Especially Jordan, but yes, both. And so <laughs> I tried to interrupt as much as I could this week because, <laughs> because, because, you know, I can only get better from that, right? You're always getting it uh, out of his system. That didn't. That did no. not amount to a resolution. No, I, I think. I think what Felix meant to say was he was getting it out of his system before going no, he going cold that. turkey in 2016. Let me interrupt you, Jordan, to mention that Jordan that Felix did not say that. <laughs> All right. We may or may not see less interruption, depending partly on whether we can get clocks installed in the state <laughs> studios. We are moving, by the way. We are? I don't know if you know this, Kathy, but we are moving to Brooklyn. Yep, Slate's moving to Brooklyn next in year. In March. Yeah. That's no good for my commute. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's straight there on the 2-3. The you problem. can also get there on the A-train. So. Okay. Um, so we are going to have state-of-the-art new podcasting studios in Amazing. Brooklyn. And maybe they will have clocks on the walls. Wow. It, you know, anything is possible. All right, we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.